in Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Um, on the blue hardback cover Bible in front of you, it can be found on page 787 and 982. As tradition at Christ Community Church, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. And next we have on page 982, Philippians 4, 1 through 9. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudodia and I entreat Syntec to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. you may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect on the word of God. The book of Ecclesiastes has this strange verse that we've mentioned several times in the preaching of these three chapters in Habakkuk. And it says this in Ecclesiastes 9:12: No man knows when his hour will come 
As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times. So the wise preacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, you know, you just don't know. You make plans, you have guesses, but you don't know. You don't know what kind of times that you get trapped in. And some men, some generations, some some people get trapped by evil times. There's a magazine called or titled The Christian Century. It was founded in 1844 and originally it had a different name. It was going to be called The Christian Oracle. But in 1900, the editor was so optimistic about the times that were coming. So imagine you're, you, most of you lived through 2000. So you remember that, that, that um, momentum going from the 1900s into the, the 2000s. Same as 18 to 1900. And the editor of the, of the, um, magazine, the Christian Oracle was, was so optimistic about the next hundred years that he renamed it the Christian history. Because this, the momentum coming into the world in the 1900 was so optimistic that this was going to be the Christian century. This hundred years from 1900 to the year 2000. Unfortunately, all of the optimism drained away in the first 40 or 50 years of the of the hundred. And you know why. It was a great worldwide depression. It was really on the heels of or right connected to the first world war. And really not much rest between the first world war and the second world war. And then the discovery of the Holocaust at the Second World War. And by the time you hit 1950, all the optimism had drained out. So it wasn't the Christian century anymore. Some historians, depending on what vantage point you would have, some American historians would say the following 50 years, relatively speaking, were more peaceful and prosperous. Parents would think about their children and say, they're going to be better off than I am today. What will historians say about our times? From from the year 2000 to 2050, it's hard to know when you're in the middle of it, but what if they reflected back? What would they say these times were like? I would say that at least it feels like uncertain times. Sometimes, some days, it feels like evil times, that we're, we're like that bird that's caught in that cruel net. And the question is, as, as a believer, as a church, as a follower of Christ, how do you live through those evil times? Because you might be, we might be caught in evil times, and the question is, well, how do you live in that moment? How do you live through that moment? Instead of just closing your eyes and waiting for good days, you're supposed to be able to live through those times in the book of Habakkuk, he's a great assistant to us in this particular question. Because he's a man who, who lived through evil times. The, the name Habakkuk, if you remember, means wrestler. He's, a, he's somebody who grappled with his times. His first sort of big wrestling match was with his own people, his own culture. He lived in this downward spiral of moral and spiritual decay. 
And the worst part about the preacher Habakkuk was the decay wasn't just on the outside. The decay was on the inside. It emanated from the church out to the culture. So he's just not frustrated at the culture. Anybody can be frustrated at the culture. He's the preacher behind the pulpit saying, the problem is us. It's emanating from within. And so he wrestled against his own people. He also wrestled against the threat of imminent invasion by terrorists. If you look at verse 16, we talked about this last week. I hear... My body trembles. I've heard what the Lord has said. My lips are quivering. Rottenness is entering into my bones. My legs are trembling. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's sitting in a place he knows an invasion is imminent. And there isn't anything he can do about it. So he's wrestling with the, his, his own people. He's wrestling against the, the invasion that's going to happen. But probably his most challenging wrestling opponent was God himself. The, the preacher, the prophet wrestling with God. Habakkuk lived in this bewildered state. He, he was the pastor of the church saying, God, your people are the problem. You should do something. And I don't understand why you're, why you're silent. And then finally, when God broke through his silence, he said, I'm going to tell you something, but if I tell it to you, you're not going to believe it. And Habakkuk is so frustrated. Just tell it to me. And God says, I'm going to send an even worse people to invade your people. The, the really evil people are, are going to overtake just the quite evil people. And Habakkuk says, I can't believe it. And God says, yeah, I told you. If I told you, you wouldn't believe it. And so he, he ends in, the, in chapter 2 in this just complete state of bewilderment. He's the guy who's trusting God. He's the one who's following on God's heels. But what he finds out is God turns around and runs him over. He doesn't just get flattened by his people. He doesn't get, just get flattened by the culture. He gets flattened by God's actions Towards himself. And so he's completely bewildered. He's living in evil times. He's wrestling through this. And we saw last week the beginning of a, tur- a corner that gets turned in chapter 3. He, Habakkuk moves away from complaints and, and, and moves towards contentment. He, he moves away from this heavy sigh to, to singing. Chapter 3 is a song. He breaks out into a song in chapter 3. His circumstances don't change, and this is critical for us. His circumstances don't change. It's not like at the end of chapter 2, some, some the light comes on. No, he's still living in evil times. His circumstances don't change, but his attitude changes. And his attitude changes in such a way as he closes with this very powerful song in chapter 3. And so in chapter 3, we're sitting at the feet of this bewildered prophet who's learned how to sing when life doesn't make sense. So that's what we're here to learn. How, How do you do that? When If you're in that place, if we're in that place, if you ever get to that place, you're going to come back to Habakkuk and ask, how do you sing when... When life doesn't make sense. And we talked about four things last week. Actually, three of the four. First, he sits silently before the Lord. 
that changes his perspective. He has this mixture of fear and faith. That's last week's sermon. And then finally today, he, he fights for joy, verses 17, 18, and 19. So, so how do we sing when life doesn't make sense? How do we sing in or through evil times? One of the things that we have to do is we have to fight for joy. Verse 17, though the fig tree doesn't blossom, there's no fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fails, the yields no food, the flocks are cut off from the fold, there's no nobody in the stalls. See, Habakkuk is, is describing a complete meltdown. There's nothing left. It's not just a tough time, it's a disastrous time. And these words, verse 18, yet... See this corner, yet I will rejoice. I will take joy. Even when I get flattened, I do have a reason and a way to have joy. Really similar to the Apostle Paul, Philippians 4, 4. And you'll need to just flip back and forth as we talk about these two passages. The Apostle Paul, when he's writing this letter to the Philippians, he's sitting in a Roman prison. So it's helpful to understand his circumstances when he says rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. He's in the middle of being imprisoned in a Roman prison. And he's saying, I'm rejoicing and you should be rejoicing, you people in Philippi. And and in the Greek, it's an imperative. When he says rejoice, he doesn't just describe something. He commands something. He's not asking you to consider rejoicing. He's saying you should rejoice. It's a command. Joy isn't an option for the Apostle Paul. He's commanding the reader to to be joyful. And so my question this morning is, is, so how do we fight for joy? How do we make that fight? Three things I just want to mention here. We remember, we renew, and we have relationships. We, we are remembering our grounds for joy We're renewing our mind, and we have relationships that help us in our fight for joy. So those are the three things I want to look at this morning. First, we we remember the ground for our joy, Habakkuk 3.18. Yet I will rejoice what? What's the ground for the joy? Not circumstances, but a Savior. I'm, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. I will take joy in God. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice, Paul says, in the Lord. So Habakkuk and Paul are doing something which, which takes really a great deal of discipline. They, they're able to lift their eyes off of their circumstances, which do not change, and put a, put a different perspective on their life. They, they lift their eyes off themselves, off their circumstances, and they put them on God. See, verse 19, God has helped Habakkuk tread on high places. He, he, he said some things to Habakkuk to say, see, Habakkuk, there's a different perspective here. And if you could take my perspective on what's happening, there would be a place that you could have joy. Now, now this, this is a theme that runs, and I just want to mention a couple of places where, where if you have a different perspective, even in the middle of difficult times, there still can be joy. Second Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore, we do not lose heart. And then he lists some ways you could be losing heart. The, out, or the outwardly, outwardly were wasting away. Yet inwardly, this is the why I'm going to have joy, 
we are being renewed. We have light and momentary troubles, but those things are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, so from, from our perspective, we might look at ourselves and say, but, but I'm wasting away. My, my body's going downhill. My circumstances, my life circumstances are all going downhill. My, my finances are going downhill. My relationships are going downhill. Yet from God's perspective, these are light and momentary troubles. Because there's an, an eternal joy that outweighs all things. And Paul is able to see these things, name them and say these are difficult, and then lift his eyes and say, but I have an eternal joy. I'm going to have my eyes on that eternal joy. Peter says this, Second Peter 3. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. How many times you thought the Lord was just working too slowly? I mean, Habakkuk, certainly. First complaint, it's too slow. I mean, if I can see it, surely you can see it. Why aren't you acting? And so Peter is just saying something that we have to have in our brains. God's never slow. He's always on his time, which is always the right time. And so from our perspective, we might look at our circumstances and seem, it just seems like God's moving too slow. It creates suspicion in our hearts and our minds. But we have to, we have to read this verse and understand from God's perspective, he has a totally different timetable than us. So much so that he just says, you know, one of your days is like a thousand of my years. So Habakkuk has to come to grips with the fact that God is sovereign. And his will many times will operate in ways that don't make sense to us. He has to have a, a change of perspective. He, he has to realize that God is doing things that might to us seem crazy, but to, are to our benefit. And what's the easiest example of that? What are you doing? What are you allowing to happen? Paul, I've got a totally different perspective than you do. And trust me, Paul, it's going to work out to your benefit. So, so when you get trapped in evil times and you feel like, I just can't see anything good coming out of this circumstance, you just have to step back and trust that God's in control. Things may be wasting away, but I can still have my eyes on an eternal joy. It may seem too slow, but God is, is still at work. Chapter 4, verse 1 in Philippians. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Rejoice. Again, what are, what are the grounds for this rejoicing? Paul says, therefore, my brother, stand firm and rejoice. Okay. Okay, Paul, what's the ground for this rejoice? We need to go backwards. Go back to verse 20, chapter 3. This is the ground for what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. But our citizenship is in heaven, and for, from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him 
even to subject all things to himself. So Paul's saying rejoice, but he's already told his reader the ground for the rejoicing is that we have a citizenship is in heaven. And we're waiting a Savior to come. And see, this is so critical to joy. So critical that you understand you have a different citizenship. Here, you're just a pilgrim. You're a, a sojourner. But you're on your way somewhere. So no matter how hot the circumstances may be here, you're on your way to another place. For, for several years, we took uh, trips as a church to Haiti. And we would go down to Haiti, and if you've never been to really a, a really impoverished third world country, it's, it's a shock to your system. And there's so many resources that are lacked in Haiti. And so it gets very frustrating because you have problems medically and you have problems if you're trying to build something. You have problems all the time. You're never very far from voodoo and all kinds of suspicious activities. It's very unnerving. And so when I would go down there or folks from here would go down there, you go down there and for a week or two, and you could serve with joy. Why? Because I had a little blue book. You know what that blue book told me? I'm not a citizen here. <laughs> I'm a citizen in another country. And I'm going to pull out this blue book one day, and I'm going to go to another country. And that's the perspective you and I need to have. Here, no matter how hot the circumstances may be, no matter what the resources are lacking, you have a little book that tells you you're a citizen of another country. And when that fuels you, then you understand you can live for a week or a lifetime in difficult circumstances because you're on your way to eternity. There's an illustration. I wish I had a piece of rope, but the guy takes a really long piece of rope and he 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 puts a like a red tape around this white rope. And this rope goes all the way across the stage. And he says, now imagine your life being this little piece of red tape. This is your whole life, 60, 70, 80 years and eternity is the rope. And you spend your whole life complaining about the piece of tape. And he's saying, look at the rope. You have an entire eternity of glory with God. And you're so focused on the one inch piece of tape. He says, get your eyes off of that. Look at the rope and then live with joy in this moment. So one thing that Habakkuk teaches us is we have to have a a different perspective. We have to lift our eyes off of our circumstances and have an eternal perspective. And that is one of the ways that we fight for joy. And so my question to you is, is, does that reality shape your life? Because if it doesn't, then you just need to work on this week saying, I've got to think about eternal things. I've got to have my eyes in a different place. Secondly... We renew our minds. These things run together. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, anything excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about or meditate or dwell on or repeat these things. Look back with me at Habakkuk chapter 8, uh, verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, comma, I will take joy in the, in the Lord. I mean, is Habakkuk stuttering? He just said it once. Now he's saying it again. No, he's repeating. 
He's saying it again and again and again. He's got to get it in his soul. He's living in evil times, so he can't just say it once. He's got to say it again and again. He's got to have it in his mind. And one of the most important ways we fight for joy is to focus your mind on what's true. So many times people, including myself, will have uh, bitter conversations, false narratives that dominate our mind. They're con- it's, like a, it's like a tape. It's constantly running. And you have some bitter conversation, some false narrative, and you live by that, and you really can't experience joy. Let me just give you several illustrations. Number one, false narratives. One false narrative. My value is determined by your assessment of me. Wow. Lots of people live by that false narrative. My value is determined by your assessment of me. Lots of preachers struggle with that. If you like me, I'm doing a great job. If you don't like me, I'm down. So I have this false narrative that I've got to have my wife or my kids or my boss or my neighbors or my church or whoever it is. They've got to think well about me. And when they think well about me, I have what I think is joy. But when they don't, then I'm down. Things bring me happiness. If I just have this thing, whatever it is. As soon as I get to this weekend, as soon as I get to this event, as soon as this is over, as soon as I get. Many of us live with those false narratives and it just robs us of joy. If I worry enough about something, I'll prevent it from happening. I won't ask for a show of hands. See, if I'm always worried about it, then I'm sure it's not going to happen. That's a lie. That's a false narrative. If you have running through your mind, it robs you of joy. So it makes a difference how we think. Some people have words running through their minds from conversations 20 or 30 years ago. I asked somebody one time about a very difficult conversation they had. And, and I asked them, well, is it, is it con- still consuming much of your mind, much of your attention? Here was their reply. Well, just this morning, I was rehearsing the entire conversation, replaying every bitter word. You see, they have a narrative running through the brain, robbing them of joy. Because I just have a bitter conversation that could have been when I got out of the car to come to church today. Could have been 40 years ago. And that one conversation just dominates your mind and robs your joy. William Cooper lived in the 1700s, very talented hymn writer, yet very emotionally disturbed. He's the one who wrote these words. God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. What a great truth. But Cowper, when he, or Cooper, when he was 42, he had what he called, he, he titled it, The Fatal Dream. It's a dream where he remembered hearing these words, It's all over for you, Cooper, you're lost. Now this is just a dream. It's all over for you, you're lost. 
Twelve years later, he wrote a letter to his dear friend John Newton, hymn writer of Amazing Grace, pastor. And he wrote this, I had a a dream 12 years ago, John, before the recollection of which all consolation vanishes. Every time I recall it, all consolation vanishes. And it seems to me it must always vanish. Do you see? I've got a false narrative. And every time I remember it, all consolation, all hope just dries up. I think it's just helpful to remember that this renewing your mind, it's a fight. It's not anything you just wander into. Wow, I just have a well-renewed mind right now. I wish it, it happened that way. Come stand right here and you'll get it. I mean, it doesn't work that way. It's something you have to fight with. You have to fight against. Peter says this, I urge you to abstain from sinful desires, these sinful thoughts, which war against your soul. So so when we say it's a fight for joy, it's a real all-out fight. It's a fight against these false narratives. It's it's a fight against these, these sinful desires. It's a fight against these bitter words. You have to fight for joy in the midst of evil times. And my question to you would be, what words, what conversations do you constantly replay in your mind? What, what narratives do you live by? Maybe it would just be, do you know you live by a narrative? So you not, might not be in tune with it, but maybe this week you just want to have a pen and a piece of paper somewhere and you, you just jot down, yeah, I keep thinking about this, I keep thinking about this, I keep thinking about this, and, and then you'll know what drives your joy. Final thing, relationships. We've got we to gotta renew our minds. We have to have the Lord's perspective. We've got to remember that he's operating in a way that we're not operating And finally, a word about relationships and our fight for joy. It's interesting to me in Philippians 4, Paul's exhorting this joy and sandwiched here between verse 1 and verse 4. And it seems a little odd to me is uh, he wanted to bring up this fight with two women in the church. Two women whose names, verse 3, are written in the book of life. So these these are real believers, but... They've gotten into a fight in some way. They've made a secondary issue a primary issue. And it's having this negative effect on the church. In other words, this internal fight's choking out joy, and Paul knows it. And so he wants some restoration in that relationship. And I think almost all of us can understand how a a relational disagreement really puts a stranglehold on joy. I mean, my wife and I have a really terrific marriage. But but we can let little things become big things. And what seems sort of mildly aggravating turns into anger. And then all joy lost. 
So you have to fight. You have to fight in your relationships to understand what, what contribution you're making to that. What, what do you need to do here with a, a spouse, a friend, somebody in the church to say, it's robbing my joy because I've got this tension with somebody else. In a church or a marriage, you have to guard your relationships. You have to, you have to fight for joy because you need people who are fighting for your joy. Proverbs, I love this, how he says this, 17.22, a cheerful heart is good medicine. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've been down and a certain person walks in and they're like the sun. And you just want to be around them all the time. Because your darkness, it, it, it recedes because this person who's, who's joyful medicine, who's good medicine, they, they come in. Some people just, that is a gift. They walk into a conversation, they walk into a room, they walk in, just it, the whole thing goes up because their presence. And when you find somebody like that, you try to be their best friend. And they're the person you call, their speed dial when you need a friend. You're phoning a friend, hey, I'm down, I need some help. And, and they're good medicine to you. Again, William Cooper and John Newton, very interesting relationship. One historian said this about John Newton. Newton is best known as the author of Amazing Grace. But he's also known as one of the healthiest, happiest pastors in the 18th century. People said of other pastors that they were respected by their people, but Newton was loved. In 1767, John Newton met William Cooper, two hymn writers coming together. And Newton proved to be such a a help to Cooper's fight against his own depression that Cooper decided to move in and become neighbors with Newton. Now, how would you like that? I just thought for myself, I'm not looking at anybody. (laughs) But if like your most dysfunctional congregant decided, I'm just going to buy the house next to you. (laughs) How would you feel? So, so Cooper had gotten so much help. He becomes neighbor. He, he becomes a part of, of Newton's church. So now they're friends, and he's also the pastor of this, this very depressed soul. Cooper says this of Newton, A more sincere or affectionate friend no man ever had. See, Newton was good medicine to Cooper's soul. I don't know, but I get the feeling that, you know, Paul, when he had a split with Barnabas, he had to choose somebody else. He chooses Silas. And, of course, you're not really sure. You know, Silas seems just comes out of nowhere. But in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are jailed. And after they're put in jail, it's like the darkest part of the jail says, what are they found doing? Singing. And I just have this feeling, again, this is just my guess, Paul needed somebody who knew how to sing when life doesn't make sense. Because he knew we're going to get into some difficult places, and I can't always guarantee safety. And when we get into that prison, I'm going to try to sing, but I need somebody who's going to try to sing too. And so there they are. They're singing together when life doesn't make sense. They're, they're understanding we've got to fight for joy right now. 
And, and what helps Cooper fight for joy, what helps Paul or Silas fight for joy, is they have somebody fighting for joy with them. I was watching this history channel, and I was just sort of flipping through, and it was something about war. And this old soldier was talking about real combat. So when, the, when you're really in the middle of the war, when, when the bullets start flying and, and the bombs start going off, and I'm going to try to remember basically what he said, when you're in an intense fight, you are aware that you're fighting for freedom or for your country. But when the bullets start whistling by your head and bombs start exploding, you're most aware that you're fighting for your friend next to you. See, when everything starts uh, going off, you're most aware that you're, you're, you're going all out for your friend. You want to keep him safe. I'm going to fight for this person. I'm going to make sure they make it. And you've got to have somebody in your foxhole that's like that. That when it's all melting down, you've got somebody who's that friendship, who's that relationship, who says, I'm going to fight for you. And I wonder if you have somebody like that. I don't know why this happened, and this may not be a connection. I was just thinking about this yesterday and today. Probably one of Jesus' most intense fights was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember that? So he goes to the Garden, and there's this real intense spiritual battle, so much that he's sweating blood. And what does he ask? I need some people to go with me. And then he goes a little bit further and he comes back to check on his sleepy friends. And then he goes back out and he comes back. His friends are still asleep. And of course, I don't know. I don't know why he comes back. But it may be His fight, he felt like giving in until he saw his friends. And he said, I've got to keep fighting because I love Peter, James, and John, and I will fight to my death for my friends. Fortunately, if you don't have that kind of friend, you have Jesus. So that when you fall asleep, when you're unwinding, When you're the biggest problem, not somebody else, he's fighting for you. He stands at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for for me, for you. But he's designed it that you would have a friend who would be in your foxhole, and when all the bullets start flying, they're going to fight for your joy. You've got to have in mind God's perspective and an eternal perspective. You've got to have the truth running through your mind. But you have to have a friend right next to you. Because when the bullets start going off, you need somebody right next to you. Do, do you know a person like that? Do you know the narrative that runs through and dominates your mind? Do you mostly have your eyes on your circumstances or on the Savior? Let's pray. Lord, we we will, and many of us have been through days 
that the fig tree doesn't blossom. We planted, we watered, we fertilized, we prayed, but what we hoped for didn't happen and isn't going to happen. We built a barn thinking cattle were going to be in it, and the cattle never showed up. We're so thankful for this little time with Habakkuk, our friend, who's helped us to know how to navigate evil times. Lord, I pray that you would um, help us as a church to, to get our relationships right in this struggle for, for the truth, that, that the relationships wouldn't unwind here and cause us to lose joy. You would help us to really know the truth, to have the truth running through our minds instead of false narratives, bitter conversations. You'd help us to help one another lift our eyes off of our circumstances and to see you. Would you strengthen your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our closing song.